Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Ron Burks is a colleague, a psychologist, and has a Master of Divinity, and he's a really nice guy. You heard the first part of his interview last week, and here is the second half. Here's Ron. So can we then shift gears to your experience? Because I'd like to hear more about how you got involved in the church that kind of, I think, led you into this work and what it was like at the beginning, how it changed and how it affected you and how you healed from it. So I guess, you know, the trajectory, but um, so sort of take us through your story. Okay. Yeah. Well, for me, it, it began, uh, it began in college, as it does for so many, because for the first time, you really are on your own, mm-hmm. and um, you're also open to new ideas, and, um, you know, you're, you know, and the whole process of getting an education at a university is about, you know, having at least somewhat of an open mind, Yeah. because uh, you're learning things you, you really didn't, you know, that, you know, this is, this isn't high school anymore. Yeah. Right. And, um, uh, you know, and so I got involved with a very innocuous uh, religious group that was very active and, you know, and um, they had, um, you know, um, uh, activities that people did together. And there was a group of us that um, just happened to hit it off. And, you know, and, and uh, my uh, sophomore year, uh, four of us, you know, from the same group lived in this in this little house mm. you know, right off campus. And um, it kind of became a, a gathering place for other people that, you know, that were uh, uh, really hungry for more than this particular group offered. So we were sort of pre-read, you know, pre, we were primed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, um, in the, the 70s, the uh, charismatic renewal swept through the churches. And um, uh, it's amazing that, that uh, especially in, in winter here in Tallahassee, how many traveling evangelists that we had who were from the North that um, just somehow felt led to come down and speak in these little prayer groups in, you know, here in, here in Florida. And uh, <laughs> it's just a lot warmer here than, this, you know, right. and, you know, and then in the, in the, in the summer, of course, they'd all be gone, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it was some good times and, um, uh, but gradually we moved further and further, you know, into the, um, uh, uh you know, the charismatic, you know, era, and, and, uh, there, uh, there became a lot, there, there was a lot of, um, it was the beginning of the televangelists and some of their outrageous problems that they were having very publicly that was happening many more times in a much lower level. And, uh, mm. well, then along came these four teachers who talked about integrity and they talked about that, you know, we were going to restore integrity to the, they had a covenant between themselves mm-hmm. so that would be sure that they didn't fall prey to the same temptations that their, you know, their itinerant, other itinerant brethren. Did. Okay. It was very attractive. It, you know, it, it really fit, you know, our value system and the, the, that uh, mine and my, and my friends, sure. you know, and um, so one by one, we all, you know, uh, began listening to their tapes and, you know, there really wasn't anything to join at the time. There were just four teachers who would go to conferences and do things. And, you know, I understood that they were going to put together a, um, a television ministry. They were one of their uh, administrators went to a conference on this new product called the video cassette. <laughs> <laughs> and the only groups of people there besides there were a few broadcasters not a lot but a few broadcasters the only people that were there were religious groups mm-hmm. and pornographers <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so they formed they formed this organization video ministry so they were going to form you know the lectures of these of these four pat and itinerant preachers and they were good i mean you know they were funny they were you know articulate you know, very entertaining. You you know, they could keep an audience transfixed for 90 minutes, you know, without a break. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just, you know, it was amazing. Uh, it was, you know, it was like 
I mean, the only thing I can compare it to, which is was a, you know, an evening of, of a headliner comedian. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Who can just you know he's got you all you know right for right. you know yeah. doing a two hour or you know show like that it was yeah. it was like a show and usually the music was you know was put together by you know people from various churches in town and and uh, uh, it was often really really quite amazing just mm-hmm. like you were talking about in your synagogue where yeah, it was just right. you know the the music itself was you know and so by the time that you know the worship you know, was period was over and the, and the uh, speaker began, we were all in, you know, we were feeling really good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I went back when I wrote the book <clears throat> on my experiences, I went back and looked at my notes from those days and I would see, you know, a Bible verse and then I would see what they said, the Bible verse said. Mm. Well, the mm. time I was doing that, I was going to a, a mainstream seminary. And I was being taught, you know, the way that professionals interpret the Bible and, you know, and, and, and what I realized is that, you know, that isn't what this verse is saying. That's not the context of who, you know, that doesn't take into account who was there, what it might have meant to them, you know, mm-hmm. it missed the entire, you know, cultural, literary, you know, context that's always been part of interpreting the Bible. Right. You know, it felt good to hear that at the time. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't what that particular verse was saying. <laughs> you know, they picked up on one part of it and then tied it to another verse from some right. other author. Right. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so interesting. And yeah. and why do you think they did that? What was the what was the purpose for that? It wasn't unusual. A lot mm-hmm. of preachers yeah. preach that way, even though they know they shouldn't. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, as part of you doing your research for your book, you were finding. Different interpretation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I realized the only way I could have not seen that was I realized I was in an altered state. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mm-hmm. just like the re- you know, research has shown is that mm-hmm. it felt good. So it must be good. Because mm-hmm. it certainly did feel good. Uh, and, it, you know, the, the experience of these very articulate and, you know, and uh, funny, I mean, just plain funny. You know, these were not, these were not, um, uh, Bob Mumford, for instance, was Billy Graham's favorite Bible teacher at one point. Mm. And um, uh, so he was, you know, these were, uh, these were people that certainly did have a gift. The, um, where their gifts didn't seem to lie was in organizing a worldwide movement. Right. Okay. And to come apart. Okay, so Bob Mumford, was he one of the four that you yes. mentioned? Yeah. Right. And so who were the others? Charles Simpson, Eric Prince, you know, and Don Basham. And then for a while, there was a, a man named Ern Baxter. So. Okay. All right. And the name of the movement? In, internally, we called it Covenant, you know, because most of the groups were called Gulf Coast Covenant Church, Covenant Church of Mobile, you know, and, and uh, all whatever the town was, it would have the word covenant. And, and most people thought it was evangelical covenant church, the old Swedish, you know, reformed denomination, you know, mm-hmm. and um, would think that's what it sounded like a, you know, a mainstream church, mm-hmm. but it was, you know, they were all uh, sort of under a, 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 a sort of a multi-level marketing kind of system. So. Ah, okay. So how did that play out the multi-level marketing system within your church? Well, the, the four leaders supposedly were, were submitted to each other, and then each of them had groups of, you know, groups of leaders that, you know, that were their sort of disciples, you know, who had their groups of leaders, you know, who are, are, are you know, who are their disciples. And then mm-hmm. pretty soon you started getting into the rank and file, you know, yeah. and so a part, part-time or full-time pastor might have a dozen families or so that tithed. And so, uh, you know, so they got, they lived about the same socioeconomic status as the people that they were, you know, that they were uh, pastoring, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, you know, the system, you know, sounded good and uh, had a lot of things going for it. But what qualified you for ministry was not necessarily your gifts uh, for properly understanding you know, the Bible, it was more, it would all, it was often, can you draw a crowd? Because if you could draw, draw a crowd, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and they all tithed, you gave 10% of their income, why, well, you know, you got yourself a little church group, you know. 
you know, and so and that you know that that uh, pattern reproduced itself in you know in uh, most major cities. About at any given at the at the height, there were probably fifty thousand people worldwide that were in this kind of system. Mm-hmm. And I'm sad to say this system exists today. And, and of course, you know, the shepherding movement didn't invent it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's evidence that things were people were doing the same things using the same misusing the same verses in you know in the you know about 100 AD, 120 AD. So yeah, it's uh, been around a while. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was course and you know, it, there's many instances far, you know, um, uh, you know, behind that. Mm-hmm. That um, uh, this is again nothing new, but it was a it um, uh, became quite a phenomenon. So. And so, you know, when you talk about having as your calling card that you can become a leader in the community if you can draw a crowd, uh, of course, there are a lot of issues with that. There are a lot of inherent issues with that because then it's um, it's kind of charisma over content. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's yeah. a that's a problem. Yeah, it uh, early on it became real clear that it was about appearances, not realities. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you could put on a good show, if you you know if you had the appearance that you measured up to all the things, that was what was important. You know, there was called fruitfulness. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and it was uh, this emphasis on you know on being fruitful. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, at one point we were in a very small group and. Central Colorado, which only has a 90-day growing season, mm-hmm. so uh, and and it's I mean between frost between frost mm-hmm. that's it you know right and right. Uh, you know so and they grew corn they grew all kinds of things there but everything had to be custom tailored to that area you know certain right. you know yeah. kinds of you know things wouldn't grow there and uh, you know and so there was that teaching was you know when you only have 90 days you better be able to bear fruit quickly. And so there was a tremendous psychological burden if you couldn't bring people in, hmm. draw a crowd yourself, you know, because it was strictly became a performance basis. And, um, you know, and it, and it wasn't the people who, you know, were the, the, the most actually gifted in, in the work itself. It was people who, you know, had the personality and mm-hmm. the ability to, you know, to uh, put on a good, good show. The irony is that the the group did produce, in some, this is to some extent, the very thing that it was, uh, it set about to solve, in the charismatic renewal, because you begin to have people rise up in leadership who didn't have the integrity, you know that, you know, uh, that right. they should have, yeah. and then it came out afterwards that the leaders themselves really spent very little time, actually being accountable to each other mm-hmm. but at the same time the entire system held eventually the rank and file were held so accountable that you know you you really you really felt that you needed i mean people didn't tell you what to do you know but you but there were times where if you asked permission for something or if you said what do you think about ran it by your pastor mm-hmm. then if it went wrong the the pastor didn't get blamed, but you did the right thing because you know you you, you know uh, you know, obeyed your pastor as unto the Lord, and so because you are now doing the right thing, even if it didn't work out, you were looked on as being 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 a good person, and <laughs> and a lot of people in leadership. I mean, you know, once once <laughs> once you're there, you think you really know. And so people were giving mm-hmm. advice on who they should marry, but, you know, not not requiring, so to speak, you know. But there were many stories out of out of um, what Christians call the Old Testament, where, you know, that where um, you know wives were chosen for their, you know, the young ones and so forth. So that was, mm-hmm. you know, so it seemed to fit that if one pastor suggested that person might want to date so and so, you know. And right. so there were there were a number of semi-arranged marriages that you know again no one was forced to or expected to or required or anything like that but mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. but there were people who at, you know at, afterwards realized this is not who the partner I would have ended up with you know they may may have made the best of it but you know you know it's like the Mooney weddings right that that you know Reverend Moon's just, just <laughs> takes names out of a 
Well, that, that, that would be a caricature of what we were doing. Right, exactly. <laughs> you took what we were doing and crank the volume up, you end up with <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> up to 11. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's the same thing with a lot of different religions. It's the same thing with the ultra-Orthodox in my religion. I, you know, that there are still within certain factions arranged marriages. You can't make a decision without finding out what the rabbi thinks. And I'm sure it's a similar sort of thing that whether it were the right advice or the wrong advice, what mattered is that you were being a dutiful person and you were doing right. things the right way within the community and for God. And as the, you know, somehow that that's more important, um, kind of form over function. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what is also important is what gets lost is cause and effect. What gets lost is if, a person should be in a position to advise you if they really are not in a position to advise you and sure. and if they should have the right to say these things. And I guess they feel that they do to a certain degree if there's no recourse, if there's no consequence, if they misguided you in some way. Yeah. A professional religious leader is not going to practice outside their realm of expertise. Mm, that's very important. You know, you know, they might have comments something to say about, you know, finances, for instance, you know, but they're not a certified financial planner. So they may have some suggestions, they may have some things they found that they, you know, they worked with them or something like that, but they're not going to tell you what you need to be doing is X, Y, or Z about, you know, should you buy the green car or the blue car? You know, right. um, okay. you know not that anyone in our group was told to do that, you know, but the, the impression was that if I did what someone suggested, then it would show that I was obedient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was much more subtle than a lot of a lot of groups are. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the subtlety was was part of the problem. It was, it was much harder to see, you know, because this is the same time where you know the um, Jonestown happened, and mm-hmm. it was real easy to draw distinctions that you know, well, we're not like them, you know. Yeah. Right. You know, um, you know, and actually, you know, we're talking about addiction. That's one of the downfalls that most people have who are trying to get free of addiction is you keep comparing your experience with other people in an AA meeting or an NA meeting, and they've been to prison for seven years, and you've just had two DUIs. And you think, well, I don't have, I must not have a problem because I don't have their problem. And so because I don't have their problem, then I don't need to do this. And so, you know, our, we could say, well, our group doesn't do that, so we must not be a cult like they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than identify, we compare. Right. If you go back and identify, then you can say, well, we did a little of this. We didn't do it to that extent, mm-hmm. but, we, but that was kind of what was behind it. You know, mm-hmm. we did a little of that, you know, not to that extent. You see what I'm saying? You yeah. know, it's yeah. identify, not compare. And we were, you know, we were comparing and that's what kept us from actually taking the, you know, the things that were happening and realizing, wait a minute, we're, we have a starter set, you know, going on here. We have a starter, a starter kit, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so what's also true is that, I mean, I think it's one of the red flags that if you're involved in something that says we're not a cult, like did we even ask, you know, (laughs) um, but the the other part is uh, they usually craft a definition of a cult, right? That is on purpose, not what they do, but that, whatever that, it is, right? And so every every cultic group has a different way of defining what a cult is, so that they can carve <laughs> out their group from that definition. So you don't go based on their definition; you find out what a cult is. Reminding me of the story we were talking about that I told you you could borrow, but uh, when I did this group, <laughs> right, uh, for a, a church that's trying to figure out if, you know, mm-hmm. they had to cultic tendencies, and I will, I'll repeat the story that I'd put, I'd, I had found a flyer that I had used at a conference years ago about how to define what a cult is and the different characteristics, and then someone came up to me after and said, I'm really disappointed because I I really thought when we were going over your handouts that we'd really be able to learn about what a cult is when you were talking, but all you did was you made a list 
of all of the, you tailor made it to our group of all the things that exist in our group and have happened in our group. And I said, uh, no, I made this list about 10 years ago. <laughs> that was a shock, you know, but yeah, to see it in, in black and white and say, oh, okay. Based on sort of the general mm -hmm. definition, people who are religious experts, people who are psychological experts, you know, that mm -hmm. oh, we fit within this, this now explains a lot. You know, this helps me see why I'm having these troubles and why I'm having these feelings and feeling kind of handicapped in one way or another. I understand that was kind of purposeful. You know, it really is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious about this sort of turning point. I'm always wondering when people start to notice, you know, and it's a very uncomfortable feeling, but it's also when you start to work towards having some freedom. Um, so what, what did it for you when you started kind of seeing what I guess you really needed to see in order to make a more fully educated decision about what you were involved in? Yeah, it, it uh, was a very long process. And uh, remember, there was no internet at the time. Uh, there was no place for, you know, for ex-members to tell their stories and to be of benefit to other people who were questioning. It was yeah. much easier to keep things, you know, under wraps. Right, and we had a you know a negative experience in um, at some point the person who had been my personal pastor he'd realized that he couldn't do it anymore he uh, didn't explain wh exactly why but he just you know and, and he didn't leave the group per se but he you know he stopped doing what he had been doing so we had to find other places and the place I found happened to be you know in Jacksonville Beach it was a you know uh, a group that was well known, you know, to the people in Mobile. They they came over quite frequently, and uh, so it was a similar group. And you know, and and he was actually uh, one of the disciples, you could say, of the leader that I had, you know, the pastor that I had, you know. And so I was sort of put under him. And the, um, you know, there were there were uh, good things about it, not so good things about it, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, the. Um, uh, the person was a uh, was a former marine, uh, so he understood, you know, authority very clearly. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. So sure. sometimes he would switch back and forth. <laughs> and, oh, interesting. And, uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, there were some things that were tough, and and um, uh, at some point we realized, you know, I told my former pastor, and he invited me to come back to Mobile. So we moved back there, and at that point, I realized this isn't right. You know, I just can't do this anymore. You know? mm. So then we got back to back to Mobile and um, back in the in the swing of things and and um, you know, but all the while in the back of my mind there was something isn't right here. Uh, this really should have been corrected a little bit. You know, uh, I mean the man was not abusive or you know, it just was. It really was overboard from even what the group did. You know, oh, and it, it, okay. it would have benefited from some sort of a correct corrective action. Right. You know, but again, it's nothing compared to many of the terrible stories that you hear in many groups. Right. Um, but it, it's one of the things that shouldn't have, shouldn't happen. And um, we got back to Mobile, and uh, it was ten years later before we actually left. Wow! Yeah. And, ten years! Yeah, My goodness! Ten years of of knowing something isn't right here. Yeah. You know, but yet we kept on going. You know, yeah, and I I find it astonishing that with working with my substance abuse patients that they know long before they actually are able to mm -hmm. stop that this isn't working. Mm -hmm. You know, they they have decided that this is not good for them. Sometimes twenty years before they're able to actually stop. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, mm -hmm. because there are so many good things about it that sort of smoothed over the hurt things you know and um yeah. you know, gradually of course the group became more and more uh successful in that they started a subsidiary in integrity's hosanna music which ended up eventually being bought by time life it was a big operation much yeah. bigger financially yeah. than even the church was and so all the finances started were, were, were uh, as they got bigger they there was no disclosure and then finally when there was disclosure mm -hmm. The largest item, there were only about 10 or 15 items on this several hundred thousand dollar church budget, which was a lot 
for those days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today that's not that's perfectly normal for for most mid-sized churches. Yeah. Uh, but the, but the, what wasn't normal was the by far the largest item on the budget was miscellaneous. Miscellaneous. <laughs> so, Love it. So there was one of the dedicated members uh, stood up in, a, in, in the congregational meeting and uh-huh. said, you know, I just want to say this doesn't seem to be very forthcoming, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and then the leader uh, really publicly humiliated. I don't I just don't think you're being, you know, I mean, in a sweet way, you know, mm-hmm. I, think, I think you're being, you know, I don't know what it was, but it was sort of, uh, you know, being. Any any hint that you were being disobedient was, you know, um, was a slap in the face, and that's yeah, what yeah. he got. Sure, sure. You know, and most of us in the room fully agreed with him, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but most of us were too way too cowardly to be able to say, "No, mm-hmm. wait a minute." Wow. So, so that really was that was the beginning of the end. And of course, my wife had had realized, you know, she had worked putting the the church's school together, and she saw some of the you know, the problems, and then. They would come to decisions, and all of a sudden, the senior leadership would just say, "Nope, we're going to do it this way." You know, you know, after the people who had been tasked to put it together, you know, had figured out a way they were going to do it. Right. And of course, right. the people in leadership were—they didn't know anything about how to start a school, <laughs> and, and some of these people were teachers. You know, so they knew what they were doing. Right. Uh, so yeah. she had, she was beginning. You know, she was done. She was just hanging around because I was there, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then my mother came down with Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and so my father needed help taking care of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I had to leave Mobile and, mm-hmm. and left under good graces. But interesting enough, hardly anyone, just one friend who was also not happy about a lot of areas in the group, uh, showed up to help me move. This was a group that everybody did everything together. When someone new moved to town, there'd be 50 people show up to empty the truck, you know. And, um, you know, uh, the same way when people moved, I moved out, but, but by that stage, things were beginning to, you know, come, right. come apart. Right. So, uh, and, and I also, I don't want to overlook what you were talking about with your wife was starting a school because that happens within certain groups that start programs where it, it requires a certain expertise mm-hmm. and insight and training. And then that all gets overruled mm-hmm. uh and it's very frustrating because then you don't get to share what you know and what you think is kind of best practice and what you think at the end of the day will be best for the children um mm-hmm. but instead you're already roped in so you kind of feel like you have to go along with what someone else says mm-hmm. uh and and I could just imagine the conflict, especially with the next generations. You want to know that you're doing right by them. That would be very hard. It's like a doctor working with a patient and suddenly, you know, at the end, someone jumps in, you know, who does construction, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, cross everything off. You know, you can't take that medication. I You need a hammer, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Oh, I'm sure that's very, very hard. Very hard. Okay. Okay. So then the 10 years also, even though you can look back on it and say, wow, that was a long time. That's, that's a pretty common thing. And I'm sure that you, you saw that in your work and you still see it, but you work at Wellspring where people had the impetus to leave or the insight, but it was still a long time in coming before they could make that change. And sometimes it's because of not wanting to leave the community or, or kind of buying into this notion that you were told that there's nothing else out there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I'm wondering then for the 10 years, what, what do you think in retrospect it was for you that had you hanging on for that length of time? Well, it was it was getting back to old friends, and mm-hmm. um, you know that we had been very very close to in the past, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and it was it sort of started being welcomed back, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, th- it, this this group provided instant friends, and I'm not talking about just one or two. I'm talking about you know five, six, ten families mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. knew and saw on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and now the longer the group went, the less, and you know that you know of that there was 
mm-hmm. you know, but that was kind of the, you know, uh, but still it was, it was, it was something that's, that hardly anyone can duplicate on the outside mm-hmm. uh, of having that many people that you are, you know, bumping into, you know, talking to. And, I'm, and again, this is long before there was Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, you actually had to physically call them on the telephone or physically go to them and, right, you know, right, spend, right. you know, have coffee with them. And, you mm-hmm. know, that was what, you know, that was the, you know, the, the level of interaction. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. was, uh, that was heady stuff. That was, that was hard. And that's hard to maintain and develop or maintain on the outside world. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then what helped you heal from your experience? Well, for me, it was really going to seminary. At uh, graduate school, started my mind working again. My, mm-hmm. you know, it was all about critical thinking. You, know, you, you can't take things for what's on the surface. You have to keep digging. You have to ask you know, probing questions. And you know, it's, it, there's a lot, of, a lot of detective work and being a, you know, a theologian, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of these guys were excellent at that, just, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, they're, they're, um, the processes they talk, you know, that they taught, you can see the same processes in the, mm-hmm. you know, and the, in the um, exchanges in the, the Midrash, mm-hmm. you know, where you have one person that says this, on the other hand, you know, mm-hmm. he says, mm-hmm. on the other hand, you know, that was, you know, that was the basis of, you know, it was always questioning, always having to use your mind and, you know, logic and, mm-hmm. and um, thinking through. And, and, and the more that, that that I learned, that freed up my mind. It was, it was very helpful for me. And it also was helpful for meeting um, other couples there, you know, who, because they were, t- they were from their little Methodist church or, you know, or, uh, you know, similar denomination, you know, got Wesleyan or whatever, and, mm-hmm. you know, we would, well, what was, what was your church like, you know, mm-hmm. and we would tell them and they looked at us like we had two heads. Yeah. <laughs> we thought we were in an ordinary church, you know, yeah. just, we just with a little, you know, a little edge, but, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that was very helpful. Uh, and, uh, and actually it was helpful when they saw parallels from their experience in a mainstream church and yeah. realized, well, all you were doing was just this with the volume turned up. Right. And, uh, you know, so that all, those interchanges, you know, having close relationships with people, you know, and, you know, classmates and, you know, and so forth, you know, was, uh, so it really helped to make the transition out of, you know, the cult into a, a real world situation. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful. I think as we finish up, I, I, I think that for people, anyone who's watching or listening, who either they themselves or they know someone who is in the process of leaving but might be too afraid to or might believe that uh, God will leave them or be unhappy with them yeah. should they leave, what would help? to reassure people what are good messages for them to try to hang on to, to empower themselves and not kind of believe that God only exists there uh, or that leaving doesn't mean going against God. Well, people sometimes would come to Wellspring and they had to make the terrible choice. They would, one of the first things they would say is that I know coming here means I'm going to spend eternity in hell, but I can't live another minute in the group. Oh. They had made that existential choice that whatever, if there's hell to pay, I can't do this. You know, a lot of times it's, it's a long time before you actually can let go of the mindset and the belief system of the group. Um, you know, you just have to go. And so a lot of people, that's how they leave. We used to have terms called walkaways, people who got dissatisfied and left. And then there were castaways where the leader threw them out because they kept questioning. But then we had, you know, people who basically they left uh, knowing that you're still believing that the group was true, but they just couldn't live up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you keep hearing that message over and over again with different church groups that are kind of controlling in their way or fundamentalist in their way that here, you know, if God only exists here and if you leave, you're leaving God. If, if people can meet each other and realize that 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 happens in so many different groups and then it kind of breaks down the validity of the message, hopefully. Just, just, it just happened by random chance. But one time at Wellspring, we actually had 
the mother of God that we were treating, oh. and we had the wife of God. <laughs> and of course, they didn't know each other. Uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> they each didn't them... know each other. Yeah, well, you know, mothers-in-law, you know how. <laughs> Now they both came, and the 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 group that the the older woman was in, uh, she had come to believe that yes, that her son was God, you know, incarnate, you know, and that that's what he taught, and that's you know, and they had a following, and she was had a revered position as the mother of God, you know, and um, uh, you know, and after a while, of course, you know, she walked away, but it was still very she. she Still had a lot of work, knew she had a lot of work to do, so why she came to Wellspring. But then what really was so therapeutic was to meet this young woman who had left, had divorced her husband, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, not long after they had gotten married, he began to, you know, have these, these experiences. And then he would tell people about them and it attracted people to them until people finally began to acknowledge what he was beginning to suggest was that he was God. And so, so they had some, they had this mock argument one time and said, you know, <laughs> the, the first name of what the son, first name of the, you know, the husband was, you know, no, he's got, no, he's, no, no. <laughs> so, that really was therapeutic, probably more therapeutic than any of the interventions we had was just to be able to finally break free and laugh about the, you know, the craziness yeah. of the situation. And it helped break them out of their, you know, their funk. You know, years ago when the Cult Awareness Network was the Cult Awareness Network, not a part of Scientology. <laughs> this still blows my mind. There, there were groups for people who had left different kinds of cultic groups. And so there was a group of people who had left Bible-based cults. And uh, somebody had little buttons printed for the group that he was a part of too at the conference. And it, they said, um, my God can beat up your God. <laughs> <And> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of show like, you know, I got yeah. better. Cause that's what we were told, you know, and uh, just kind of, you know, kind of use some humor also, but to, to <laughs> point out, yes, all of this, it can get a little nutty. We had one person bring a t-shirt to Wellspring, you yeah. know, and it had a picture, you know, and figure of Jesus. And, and the line under it was, dear Jesus, please protect me from your followers. Yeah. You know, I there was recently something about how uh, an article about Jewish hipsters and uh, that the big, you know, there's a big group of Jewish hipsters. And, and, and in my mind, I picture Jesus as a Jewish hipster. <laughs> I don't know why. Like just. <laughs> You know, a teacher, a dude, someone who, you know, it's like, you know, whatever. So, but the, yes, that's not, that's not how he's viewed in other circles. Uh, but still, um, I think also just to highlight that for some people, they leave and want to find themselves something that is a spiritual community are very fearful of it, but still sure. want that. And mm-hmm. then other people kind of go to another, the, the pendulum swings and they don't want any of it and they don't want to believe in anything. It, it was it was too damaging or too hurtful. Mm-hmm. And they go towards atheism, whatever it is, or, you know, being mm-hmm. agnostic. I don't, I don't care either way. I mean, I think though what is important for people is to not spend the rest of your life making a decision that is still in reaction to your experience, right? Should be based really on finding the thing that you think gives your life that kind of right answer or that meaning, whether it is not believing in God and believing in sort of godliness or humanity Mm -hmm. or just, Mm -hmm. you know, how we treat each other and treat our world and the Mm -hmm. earth or a belief in God, but that it becomes something that comes from you and you can take action rather than still reacting. Right. So how, how would you help someone with that kind of just be able to really block out the noise, right? And just take that kind of, take those steps for them. Well, I'm amazed when I see people who've been from such abusive groups that find their way, you know, even people who grew up in a group, 
that do find their way to some sort of a belief system that makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that the, the, you know, the, the courage that it takes to do that is quite phenomenal. We do use the term, it's called practicing safe sects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> you know, there are certain characteristics of anybody, any group, whether it's, it's religious or, you know, or uh, meditative or whatever that is, you know, that um, uh, fits where you are at the time. There are certain characteristics to look for mm-hmm. that are suggestive that probably, um, you know, this is a, you know, this is a group that is not going to, you know, uh, or is not harmful and um, probably won't develop it, you know, mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, um, you know, one of the things that can be helpful, for instance, is, is you know, being part of a group that you know, has been around for more than 200 years and all its founders are dead. <laughs> you know, and uh, usually it's going to be a group that's going to cooperate with lots of other like-minded groups mm-hmm. on humanitarian causes. Mm-hmm. Even, if the, even if the groups they cooperate with don't fit the same, don't have exactly the same belief system, but they probably share elements of their value system, and that's where they work together. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, you know, you can see, uh, tell a lot about the health of a group uh, when they're, it's like uh, one <laughs> family friend was talking about a, a, a group that that uh, he thought was, was just another church in town, and, and uh, they were trying to work with them, and uh, he, he just, he was saying very nicely, he said, this group is radically uncooperative Ooh, okay. <laughs> later i found out that that was an international church of christ and, oh. you know they, they wouldn't have you know done anything with any other church you yeah. know he thought it was a mainstream church of christ and most of them worked with you know with their church to you know uh, on on different things mm-hmm. but, yeah. uh, that was in the old days of icoc so. Right. Yeah. No, International Church of Christ. I mean, it's it's been around for a long time. And yeah, people do confuse it with mainline churches of Christ. It's really a shame. There's nothing like it. So so to when you enter a place uh, and they say, do you want to join? And you say, I'm not sure. Are your founders still living? <laughs> <laughs> clarify that first. Sometimes okay. you don't have to ask questions about that, but uh, expect good groups of people to be outgoing and to be, you know, to, you know, to be kind, but not pushy, you know, and they, you know, they may be used to a level of comfort in relationships that you are no longer comfortable with. And that's okay. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem. It does mean that, you know, to uh, let, let your radar tell you, but don't let it run you off right away. The reason that I say mainstream groups is because quite often mainstream groups require a certain, um, psychological and, um, training and, and and other kinds of training in their you know um, in whatever it is they do mm-hmm. and so chances are the leaders are more going to be more professional than than in a uh, uh, a church that was just started by a you know a, an articulate you know uh, person who you know re- either read the bible a lot or they had particularly had a had a guru that you know um and now they've left them and they're starting off on their own. Also, I think with a mainstream group, you have uh, safeguards. You have a, a board or a body that you can go talk to, right? A, a place that's going to be neutral, hopefully. It'll yeah. be safe and you can say uh, that something bad has happened to you or get a response that's not about turning it back on you. Uh, which I think is really very important. It's like people who meet with any kind of unlicensed or unregulated anybody. Yeah. Uh, there are no safeguards. There's no yeah. system of checks and balances. You have no recourse, no protection. Okay. Okay. And so any other characteristics just to watch out for? Maybe one or two more before we... It's uh, You're going to have a, a, a leader that the focus is not so much on him. You know, now there's certain large mainstream churches where the 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 pastor is a is a local celebrity mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. you know there you know uh, there's sometimes the term is pastor of ceremonies and be mm-hmm. asked to give the convocation at a high school right. football game or something right. like that yeah. things like that but but generally that's not the focus you know the focus is not on the leader the leader is someone who has a role to play 
you know, a particular job. Right. And okay. they do okay. that. And um, the daily affairs of the organization have to do with the volunteers that are part of it. Mm-hmm. And and you feel like you're you're contributing. People feel like they're a contributing part and, um, you mm-hmm. know, and not necessarily being told, you know, that doing what they're being told to do. You know, they're using their, you know, their expertise to do, you know. And so a lot of times you'll see a big church. If it's a large church, it, um, it will have a um, things that are obviously started because if somebody had a good idea, there's a, uh, you know, there's a big church that has a, uh, a group called Pause. Pets are witnesses too, or, you know, uh, and so they, they did basically did, did uh, you know, animal therapy in hospitals nice. and, uh, you know, in prisons and things like that. You know, so you'll see, you know, outreaches that were started by people in the community, not mm-hmm. someone that came, that came down from the top. You know, things like that, you know, right. uh, just someone who just on a lark one time went to Panera Bread and, you know, because he heard they were throwing away, you know, bread every time. So he'd go to Panera Bread and then he would pick up, you know, on Friday nights, you know, when they throw it, all their bread away, mm-hmm. you know, and then he would take it to the, you know, to the food bank and it would be available the next day. Mm-hmm. You know? And I mean, mm-hmm. it was just somebody who, you know, took it upon themselves to do that and it, you know. Right. And I think then you you get reminded that you're part of a larger world that yep. right, you your focus is outside the walls as well of the church and that the leader will let the fo- your focus be outside yeah. the walls. Yes, and you'll get the impression that you're expected to bring your brain and your skills. Your your individual skills will be appreciated right. not not, you know, told to be subsumed under some other mindset that should be, you know, what you're right. doing is godly enough or something. Right. Or just how, how devoted you are to, or self-sacrificial yeah. you are to the leader and to the right. church. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Ron, it is, it's so nice to talk to you. <laughs> it's really it's fun. It's been great, Rachel. It's um, been- and I, I hope we can do it again. I know that you have had so many years of experience that there, there's so much to share. Um, can you mention the name of your book again uh, as we finish up and then also let people know where they can find you if they want to um, consult with you or just find out about the work that you're doing? The name of the book is is Damaged Disciples and you can get still get used copies of it on Amazon. It's um, I think it's 1,436,000 uh, in it as far as ranking of sales in any given month. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, so there are only a few hundred copies out in circulation okay. these days, but, <laughs> but they keeps coming back up for sale. So yeah. usually you can find one. If there's not, there'll be there'll be some there. Okay, okay. And um, then any other any other uh, website or email help if people want your help or your insight. My website is uh, very simple at this point. Um, you know, and it's it's uh, you know ronburksphd.com. You know, and my email is ron at ronburksphd.com. That's probably the best way to get in touch with me. You can also, if you need to call and talk, uh, call my office at the hospital. The hospital that I work for is is um, um, a it's a it's a non for profit hospital. It's the you know we it, we call it the you know this is St. Elsewhere. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. we're the place where they bring the you know the hard cases that kind of stuff. You know, so but the idea is they're very they're very interested in what I'm doing and uh, they give me time. Uh, you know, um, yeah. you know to you know to field people's phone calls, but that's right. that's a number. You know, area code eight five zero four three one, and then it spells out the word fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's an inside joke in the recovery community. <laughs> Uh, it's a bit off color, but, uh, I mean, help and hope is already taken. So, oh, okay. uh, and I can also, you know, I'm, I'm available to do consults, uh, you know, in these issues, you know, to mm-hmm. help supplement counseling that the person might have, you know, Great. you know, in the home area with somebody who doesn't necessarily understand cults. So we can fill in the blanks there. So. Ah, wonderful. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Ron. It's, it's a, pleasure and uh my regards to vicky and uh i hope to talk to you again soon yes Mm -hmm. okay bye okay bye one more thing before you go so 
there was so much that was interesting about the second part of Ron's conversation with me. But I wanted to go back to something he was saying about when he was working at Wellspring, that uh, in attendance, there was at one point the mother of God and the sister of God. And ironically, they hadn't met each other before. So this is something that I sometimes come across in my work, which makes my work even more interesting than it already is. It's hard to know why people start to believe they are God. Sometimes it is a brain disorder and delusional thinking, sometimes overblown grandiosity. Whatever the driving force and origin of it, it happens. And I find it so interesting that if someone thinks he or she is God, there is usually a spouse, a parent, a child, or sibling who is impacted by that. No question. I've seen it happen a lot. And I've met people like Ron has. I've met the mother of God before, and I met the brother of God, and also some of the kids of God and the wife of God. Uh, just recently, I met the grandchildren of God. So <laughs> I've met a lot of God's family. The typical reaction I see from family members is genuine concern. And an understandable hesitancy in telling me why they've contacted me. How do you start things off? Hi, Rachel. So uh, it seems that I'm married to uh, God. And so do you have any questions for me so far? No, I'm good. I'm getting used to that as a conversation starter. I don't mean to make fun. It's just a startling moment for the listener. And then I suddenly feel a wave of compassion, knowing the gravity of this situation and sometimes the long road ahead for the loved ones. There are some famous stories about people like the sons of Jim Jones who were not on the compound during the massacre. The day they lost family members, including both their father and their mother, they carry with them the burden of having had a father who rose in his followers' eyes and in his own eyes to the position of the Messiah. And many of you have heard my interview with Jamie DeWolf and the additional one with him uh, for Patreon subscribers. Definitely check it out. Jamie is the great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, the godlike, all-knowing, all-powerful founder of Scientology. But there are lesser-known stories like the following. I have a client, a woman who was raised on a farm by, as she said, the Messiah, who also happened to be her dad. He had many wives, many, many children, and others who were swept up into his charismatic and spiritual vortex. She was held to a higher standard than anyone else, and as the firstborn child of the Messiah, it was really not until she left the farm when she was told to actually to go out into the community to recruit others when she was old enough, that she saw how different her life was than anyone else's she came across. This started her on the path out. She saw a freedom she'd never known. She actually observed interactions between parents and children that were kind and gentle and respectful. And she was also baffled by something that most of us take for granted. When she greeted people, as she was trained to by asking people first how they were, before telling them about the idyllic farm that they should want to go to, the people would often respond to her question by asking her in return, how are you? It was in these moments that she realized she hadn't ever been asked how she was before, and she didn't know how to answer it. But it made her realize that it was only in her family on the farm that it didn't matter. It didn't matter that she was unhappy or that she was troubled by something. It didn't matter what she was thinking. But the questions came so easily from others, and they actually waited for a response because it mattered. This was life-changing to her, and when she went back to the farm at the end of her recruiting days, she felt how she had only mattered there because of her work for the group, because 
her perfect behavior was used as a way to make her father look good and for a lot of other reasons, but not just because she was a living, breathing human being with feelings. She left two years later. Her mother left a few months after, and they now live together and are healing together. And then there was another situation I wanted to let you know about. I got a call from a woman who said she was trying to be a better mother-in-law to her daughter-in-law, and they were all living together, but it was hard to obey her all the time. Obey, I asked. Yes, obey. She is the daughter of our pastor who passed away, and she was next in line, and she became the messenger of God's word. This woman's son married this woman, and they moved into a house all together with the mother-in-law, who was the one who called me. The difference with this situation was that the woman who called me, having been raised in the group, did truly believe that the spiritual baton had been passed from the leader to her daughter-in-law, and that disagreeing with her would be the same as arguing with God. And she wanted my help to learn to become more accepting and deferential to a woman who was half her age, who was cold and demanding, strict, and at times highly abusive and insulting and patronizing. This daughter-in-law didn't follow in her father's, I am the humble servant of God's footsteps, but rather seemed to love the power and its power she never worked for, but just inherited. It reminds me of a quote from the writer Suzanne Necker, who said, Fortune does not change men, it unmasks them. So does power. My challenge was to help my client know she had the right to be treated respectfully in her own home by her daughter-in-law, and to also have her son step in and help her out. But I wasn't able to succeed at that time. The ingrained and long-term programming and the absolute belief that the power and word of God had been passed down from father to daughter was just too great to challenge, too scary to challenge. And my client was just too afraid to stand up to her because what if it was true? She didn't want God to be upset with her. Fear is fear. This daughter-in-law, though, recently had a daughter of her own, making my client a grandmother. And then my client called me, saying that she was caring for her granddaughter daily while her daughter-in-law did work for the church, but that in her interactions with her teeny granddaughter, she didn't feel the same fear with her or the sense that the baton had been passed down once again. And it freed her a bit. And she wanted to know if this was her chance to not only start to break free of the fear, but also maybe use some of the time with her granddaughter to help her grow up more empowered and less afraid than my client was able to grow up. And then they could grow strong together. It was a beautiful ending to the story. Actually, it's more like a beautiful beginning. Talk to you next week. As this podcast has started its second year, which is so exciting, I want to be able to reach out to you and speak to you seriously about helping to become subscribers and helping to sustain it. It is very uncomfortable for me to ask for money, really for anything, but especially for this. I know many people who listen to this benefit from it and can only benefit from it because it is free to listen to. But for others who are able to help sustain it, I would so appreciate you doing it. In fact, it's necessary. It's necessary to keep it going. So go to patreon.com indoctrination. If you can't find the link, email me at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Just let me know that you would like to become a supporter of the show. I really want it to continue, and so many of the people who get in contact with me who see it as so valuable and kind of a watershed moment for them to help them grow and change and move and, 
and see that what they're involved in is not healthy and they develop the strength to leave. I don't want this show to end for them and for everyone else. So I do my best with what I have to try to keep the show going, but I really can't keep doing it almost all on my own. It will be too hard and I won't be able to sustain it. So please, please, if it has helped you, if you think the stories are interesting, if you feel that they are heartwarming, if you think they are really, really powerful, and also in a very tangible way, offering opportunities for people to know how to live their lives and how to be free and how to prevent themselves from getting in these situations, then please support the show. If it is important to you in some personal way, or if you just like listening to it because the stories are interesting, I so appreciate it. All of the listeners appreciate it. And please do what you can. Keep it going. Thank you. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.